Mud Stories, Episode 78. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. Maybe, you know, it was the revelation that I felt comfortable to say to another living soul, this is my story and I've never told it to anyone before and I'm I'm not just the gay kid, but I'm the church kid. And this is my life, and I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, and yet I'm the gay kid. And through a series of events, I was referred to Exodus International. Um, I think the church is full of lay it at the altar, get right or get left, turn or burn, do this, or read this book, or do this thing. And what we find at the end of the day is those things aren't what free us. John 16, says it best that in this world, you will have trouble, you will have trials, but in that, Jesus has overcome the world and in him, we can have peace. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are never alone. Hey you, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the Mud Stories podcast. It's one of my very favorite things to do each and every week is to meet you here on this podcast. And it's sort of like I pretend like we are sitting at coffee or I don't know, I don't drink coffee, so I would be having hot tea, but whatever hot beverage is your favorite, let's just hang out at our virtual table. And if you're new in this place, welcome. Pull up a chair, let's link arms, and let's walk through some mud together today so that we can know, first of all, God loves us more than we can even comprehend. And secondly, that we're not alone ever, ever, never are we alone. So this is February, the month where we characteristically celebrate love. And whether that's romantic love or friendship love, love of our kids, our friends, or our family. I really wanted to have a few episodes where we talk about loving well, because there's some areas where I think we could do better, not only as individuals, but as the church as a whole. And Alan and Leslie Chambers are here to help us do just that. Now, Alan first proposed to Leslie on their first date, and they were married back in January of 1998 which led to the beginning of a very public journey, living out their faith and sharing their lives with the world. Because Alan was president of Exodus International. It was a 37-year-old Christian ministry that had been dedicated to helping gay and lesbian Christians live celibate or even heterosexual lives. And he had been their success story. He had been the one who had claimed to overcome his struggle with same-sex attraction and marry his wife, Leslie, and yet over the years came to a place where in 2013, he voluntarily shut down Exodus International and apologized on national TV to the LGBT community and anyone who had ever been hurt by Exodus. And this made international headlines. Alan and Leslie have written a book entitled My Exodus, From Fear to Grace. And what gripped and captivated me about their story is their journey from a place of certainty to a place of love, to a place of grace. You know, the title From Fear to Grace 
is gripping to me because a lot of times our ideologies keep us in a place of fear. We fear being judged. We fear reaching out. We fear loving. We fear extending grace because we just don't want to be perceived wrongly. We don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to, you know, go on the record as saying one thing and then it being construed a different way. And so we're paralyzed. Our fear paralyzes us from reaching out, from building bridges, from really loving well. And what I loved so much about what Alan and Leslie have done is they have written their story in an honest and true way, which they're going to share with you here. In fact, this is going to be part one of a two-part episode because all that they had to share was so good. I didn't want you to miss out on any of it. And so today we're going to hear part one, but their hope with this message and my hope in championing their message is that we could embrace this idea of loving well because we want to not because we have to, that we can find hope for ourselves and for the church and for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what our theology is, no matter what uh, we hold to, I believe without compromising our theology, we can love well. Let's learn to look for and affirm the image of God in every single person. Let's be a people who learn to reach out of our comfort zones and get uncomfortable. Let's love in a way that is daring and bold and real. And let's be grace recipients together because one thing I know, we all need God's amazing grace. And so it's my privilege to welcome today part one of a two-part episode with Alan and Leslie Chambers. Enjoy. Well, I think we have something in common. I think we both are very familiar with the Central Valley in California. I grew up in Visalia, and I think one of you grew up in Fresno. Is that true? I did. I, in yeah. fact, my two sisters were born in Visalia. We lived there for a number of years. I moved from Visalia back to Fresno when I was in the third grade. So, and then Aww. was there until my late 20s. I loved reading that little detail in your book. It was um the Central Valley is a special place. It's highly agricultural and kind of still, you know, slower than the pace of where I am now in Southern California. And um, going home, my parents still live in the same house. And going home is really going home for me. So it's it's lovely to have that in common. Yes. Well, I'd, I'd love it if you'd take a moment and introduce yourselves to everybody and where you live and, you know, your family and what you do. Well, we're Alan and Leslie Chambers, mm-hmm. and we live in my hometown, um, Winter Park, Florida. And um, we have two 10-year-olds. They are um, four and a half months apart. They're both adopted. Um, we um, got them both at birth, and um, they are the the fun um, in the Chambers household for sure. <laughs> And um, Leslie and I have been married for almost 18 years. I was the president of a ministry called Exodus International for 13 years and was a part of the organization for um, about 10 years longer than that, so about 23 years. Got involved when I was 19. Um, I had same-sex attractions, grew up in the church. The church didn't have an answer for me. Exodus did, thankfully. Mm. And so I spent the majority of my adult life um, involved in that ministry until we closed it in 2013 um, for many, many reasons. But um, it, it was, for me, um, a lifesaver, um, just a, a place of God's grace and learning and education. And in the end, a place that I'm better for having been, um, but also now better for having closed. So 
yeah. um, a lot in that, but we are grateful to, to be able to talk about that today. Well, you have written a book entitled My Exodus from Fear to Grace, and it's a, it's a message, really a call for all of us to extend love and be champions of grace, grace being that gift that we don't deserve, you know, an unmerited favor. But a lot of times in life, we have experiences where we're not extended grace, we're not given grace, and that makes it hard for us to give it to others. And um, I know in growing up and leading an organization, you've faced quite a bit of mud. I'm wondering, would you take us back, Alan, and share a little bit about that tension of your growing up years, um, what you began to wrestle with, and some of the mud you faced growing up and into your young adult life? Well, I grew up in church. And, you know, as, as a child, the church was this awesome place. I didn't want to be anywhere else but church. You know, my church even had a skating rink in the bottom of the, <laughs> um, of the basement. And so it was just this amazing place that I knew was my refuge. And I loved the people and I loved the message and I loved hearing about Jesus and knowing about this God that was um, bigger than anything who created me and who loved me until I realized about age 10 or 11 that I had same-sex attractions. And, and of course, at the time, um, there was no neat and tidy term for it. I just was this, um, this fag or this queer, um, mm. this, these, these words that um, began to be hurled at me. And you know, grace wasn't something I, I understood going forward from that point. And as I heard more and more about my issues and my struggles within the church, um, grace was never associated with that. I heard a lot of, of things um, that I'll never forget that caused me a lot of, of shame and hurt and torment um, and caused me to, to really live in a closet. That is a, a very accurate term um, for many, many years. And, and so that was, that was hard. The tension was definitely there. I, I remember praying every single night from the moment I understood this is who I am and understanding what scripture said that these people, you, Alan Chambers, won't inherit the kingdom of God. Mm. I remember praying every single night that God would fix me, heal me, cure me, give me a lobotomy, give me amnesia, kill me, whatever needed to happen for me not to wake up the next day um, living as a, a real live breathing abomination. And um, it was it was sheer torture um, for many, many years until I found uh, the ministry of Exodus. And it was there that I began to learn about grace. Okay. Well, before we talk about Exodus, I'm interested in you sharing about your family of origin, because there's been a lot of um, theories proposed about how our parents contribute to these sorts of tendencies. And I know you have a lot to say about that. And I also know that you had much older siblings and you write about a lot of that in your book. And so can you talk a little bit to that and the isolation that you felt in your family? Because I'm guessing you didn't talk about this to your parents. I it's didn't talk so about shameful. it at all. Yeah. yeah. It was, you know, I grew up in a um, post-military household, really. My dad was career military, um, was in the Air Force for 25 years, retired two years before I was born. But our household was very well run. Um, it was kind of a typical, um, my dad was sort of a military Archie Bunker. Uh, <laughs> my mom was sort of June Cleaver. And um, I was the youngest of six kids. But in growing up, for the majority of, of my life, it was just my brother and me. 
uh, because I was so much younger. My brother and I really were so much younger than the four oldest kids. My parents had four kids. Then they had a huge surprise eight years later with my brother. And then six years later, with you. absolute <laughs> shocker um, came me. Yeah. And so, you know, there was a, a lot of isolation. I was close to my mom, um, close to my brother, close to really all of my siblings. Um, but my oldest siblings who had kids when I was was born were more like second parents to me and their kids more like my dearest friends and and more like siblings than nieces and nephews. But this issue was one that was in the 70s and 80s, um, not acceptable, not something that you discussed. You know, even the news media was against all things gay. Case in point, when the AIDS epidemic started, when I was about 11 or 12, um, it was something that was, it upped the ante of the rhetoric and the shame and the fear um, within those of us who knew this is our story. And I remember just thinking at 11, 12, 13 years old, I don't know how AIDS happens, but because I'm gay and because God must hate me and God must hate that, um, I must have AIDS. Um, because what I heard in the church was AIDS was God's judgment on the homosexual. And I'm a homosexual and therefore I must be just minutes away from death because um, I, I'm going to be stricken with this deadly disease because this is what happens to sinners like me. Mm, so much ignorance and leading to so much despair. Um, Leslie, what was growing up like for you as you prepared to um, cross paths with Alan in your young adult life? Well, growing up in Fresno, it was very small town at that point, very, very agricultural, um, conservative, and yet not binding, not, not crazy conservative. We had, um, very middle-class family, great family. I have two sis two younger sisters. My mom and dad, um, were married until my dad passed away a couple of years ago. As far as upbringings go, mine was pretty good. Uh, we spent family vacations camping up in the Sierra Nevadas. Um, I was a competitive swimmer, so I was very busy and way too tired to ever get in a whole <laughs> lot of trouble. Um, you know, so it was good. My, my upbringing was, was good. I don't remember hearing a whole lot about homosexuality. Of course, I remember it. I remember the AIDS thing starting, you know, back when I was in high school. But at, at that point, my life was dedicated to swimming and school, and I didn't come across it much. Right. Um, well, it was out there. It was something out there, but probably yeah. not super close to home in a, in a sense. I know for me, it was, you know, we studied it in school, but it wasn't, I didn't know anybody that struggled with it. Or if I did, they right. weren't telling me, you know. Right, exactly. Uh, that was the, the era that it was. Um, yeah. So, there, yeah. It wasn't talked about much. We didn't talk about it at church. Right. Um, it was for us, it was kind of, <laughs> this may sound funny, but it was kind of like the um, gifts of the spirit. It, they were out there, but nobody really talked about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like, okay, that's for somebody else. Um, right. right. Out know, of sight, so, out of mind. Yeah. Yeah. See, I yeah. was Baptist and we didn't even, I didn't even know what a gift of the spirit was. <laughs> Oh, well, I can relate to Leslie. I grew up Assembly of God, although I've landed somewhere much more in the middle now. But um, but yeah, that that culture I can relate to yeah. very, very much. Um, well, Alan, as you, you know, are having this awareness of self, you know, and I think there's a misnomer to many of us even still how that happens. I mean, you describe it in the book as being as young as, you know, 
uh, under 10 having those feelings. And um, can you speak a little bit to to just the inaneness of it? Yeah, the you know, for so many, they hear that there is some sort of formula. And, and for years, we bought into, um, and I bought into the idea that there is some sort of formula that causes someone to be gay. And uh, what I realized more and more, and, and certainly know now, is that we're very, very complex human beings. And um, this can't be blamed on a mom or a dad or um, any type of situation. You know, I, I think so often we've heard, well, people choose to be gay. Um, and there's no choice in it whatsoever. I didn't wake up one morning and out of life's great big buffet decide, oh, this is this is how I'm going to feel and this is who I'm going to be attracted to and this is what I'm going to do with all of that. It was just something um, that over um, the course of my life and, and even my very early life um, was an absolute part of of my development and my growing up. It was it was innate to me. You know, I I remember. Um, so much of of my childhood and thinking there was never a time when I didn't know I was different. And and while that wasn't gay necessarily, it quickly moved into realizing um, I'm not um, like other boys. I'm not like my brothers. There is something different. It isn't something I chose or developed because I, I lived in the house that I lived in or had the parents that I had. It just was something um, that was a part of me from a very early age. And I, I think that that realization helped me. Um, it helped me realize I'm, I can't do anything about this. Um, I have decisions to make about how I'm going to live my life. And, and that's well within my ability and my scope to do. But this is a part of me. This is something that is me. And I can either hate this and continue to try to rid myself of it. Or I can say, this is who I am and make peace and make friends and realize God knew before the creation of the world that I was going to be who I am and I can live in peace with all of this. And, and that's really um, where I live today and, and the journey that started for me um, about age 19. Okay. So at 19, I'm imagining you're feeling super isolated at the time and era that it was and the feelings that you're feeling. So how did you find Exodus and what was the beginning of your journey with them? In 1991, I was 19 years old. I had graduated from high school the, the year before, and I had been involved in a great church with a great youth group. And every January, we went to hear a, an evangelist named Dawson McAllister. And Dawson drew a crowd of 10,000 kids or more. And at this particular event in 1991, I was sitting in an auditorium with 9,999 other teenagers and the last night of the event, he made reference to there being a gay kid in the audience and wanting to talk to that gay kid. And I knew that gay kid was me. And I tapped him on the shoulder at the end of that, that service. And we went off into a, a hallway and talked for what seemed like hours. And I said for the very first time in my life, I'm the gay kid. And the joy on his face, not at the revelation <laughs> that I was the gay kid necessarily, but yeah. Maybe, you know, it was the revelation that I felt comfortable to say to another living soul, this is my story, and I've never told it to anyone before. And I'm, I'm not just the gay kid, but I'm the church kid. And this is my life, and I know Jesus, and I love Jesus, and yet I'm the gay kid. And through a series of events, I was referred to Exodus International, which at the time was 
a 15-year-old ministry. It was headquartered in San Francisco, California, or in the San Francisco Bay Area. And they happened to have a ministry in my backyard, Winter Park, Florida, the little suburb of Orlando where I grew up. And um, it had been there for a decade since I was a little kid before I knew what gay was. And I called the number that I was given and I made an appointment and I went in and met for the first time with a counselor who shared my story, who had been there, who had grown up even more isolated than me because he was much older than me and introduced me to this amazing ministry where there were dozens of people like me coming for help on a a daily basis. And I got involved very quickly. There was no other place at the time. There was no place that allowed me to say, I'm the gay kid and, and still admit that I'm also the Christian kid. And so it was a refuge for me. It was a place of hope and um, help and support and encouragement for the gay Christian kid who just needed to know that there was somebody else out there who understood, who um, would let me sit and talk at ad nauseum um, about the things that I had endured and, and not look at me cross-eyed or with disgust or horror um, because they'd been through the same thing. And it was... It was very comforting to me. So finally, you weren't alone. I wasn't alone. You weren't alone. And realized that I'd never been alone. And and now I know that I was never alone and never could be alone because God is always there. Um, Jesus is with me. The Holy Spirit is is with me. Um, But at the time, I didn't know that. What I found out through the ministry of Exodus and through this local ministry in my backyard was not only was God always with me, but there were other people who understood and were with me too. And they introduced me um, to Jesus in the spirit um, as people in the flesh who were all too happy to sit and listen and talk with me and spend time with me. And that was, that was life-giving. Life-giving. And yet didn't magically solve your dilemma, you know? No, no, we were, I think we were all looking for our, our dilemma to be solved. That included, we thought, you know, Maybe Jesus is going to wave that magic wand over us and one, two, three, we're now going to be free and it's going to be this amazing thing. Um, And we all found um, that that wasn't the case. Um, Or in beginning to do a life of behavior modification, so to speak, you know, pray harder, uh, memorize more scripture, go to church more, serve more, all these things that didn't work. That's right. And I think so many people try those methods. Um, I think the church is full of lay it at the altar, get right or get left, turn or burn, Mm -hmm. um, do this, um, go to this study and it's going to change your life or go to this conference or read this book or do this thing. And what we find at the end of the day is those things aren't what free us. Those things aren't going to take everything away. John 16, 33 says it best that in this world, you will have trouble. You will have trials. You will have tribulations. You will have struggles. You will have Um, all sorts of things. But in that, Jesus has overcome the world and in him we can have peace. Um, And what we found, what I found, is a life of peace amidst um, a whole lot of unknowns, a whole lot of of messy days, um, grace um, abounding above all of those things, and peace really calming our soul, my soul. Um, And it's, it's an amazing thing. And yet it was a journey. It wasn't instantaneous, this grace you've arrived at. 
No, okay. it was it was hard. So take me back to I mean you're you're getting involved with Exodus, you're finding a respite, you're not alone, you're encountering empathy, uh, which is starting to shatter a little bit of the shame, but you're still exploring and becoming who you are and um a double life ensues and you end up meeting Jesus in a bar. Can you explain all of that? One of my favorite nights of, of all time and <laughs> You know, I, I often say that I, I'd love a billboard at our church or another church that says, I found a church that was better than my favorite gay bar. And <laughs> not, not to knock the gay bars, not to knock people who go to gay bars, but, you know, what I found was um, my gay bar at the time uh, was better than my church. It was um, a place where I did meet Jesus one night, where um, God the Father absolutely invaded my privacy, um, sitting at a high top table with an amaretto sour or two or three or 10 and, and began talking to me in the midst of my loneliness and my shame and my pity. Um, and his message to me that night was, even if you choose to stay here the rest of your life, um, I love you no matter what. I created you for something better and not better than a gay bar, but better than the turmoil that I'd found myself in, better than drowning my sorrow in amaretto sours, better mm -hmm. than feeling worthless, better than looking for anyone or everyone to go home with to make myself feel better. He created me for something much, much more. Um, and it was peace. It was an understanding of his unfathomable grace, his presence, his joy, um, him on a, um, a second by second basis. And as I sat there with him that night, um, none of my friends showed up. And I just was having this amazing conversation with a God who constantly one-upped me, who every time I presented him with a barrier, every time I presented him with an obstacle or a but, um, he came back with something that, that melted me, that changed me um, to the point that I said, I, I can't leave here. As much as I want to, as much as I want peace, as much as I want freedom, um, as much as I don't want another amaretto sour, I don't know that I have the strength or the ability to live any other life than I'm living right now. And two seconds later, two people from a new church I'd started going to walked through the door and they walked up to my table. Um, and I, at that moment, I realized, man, I, I probably should have gone to a different bar than the one that's on <laughs> the same street as my new church um, and probably shouldn't have parked my car. Um, on the, the street where everyone coming out of church that night could see it. Um, but these two people walked into this bar. They weren't gay. They had never been in this place before. They saw my car. They felt like God said, I needed a friend um, mm -hmm. or two. And they walked up to my table, offered to stay, but said, hey, you know, hey do you want to go get some late night breakfast? Do you want to go hang out and talk about whatever it is um, that's going on with you? Because we have the time and we want to listen. Um, and we feel like that's the kind of friends we want to be to you. And I said, I absolutely want to do that. And so we walked out that night and it was the beginning of not less struggle, not less gay, not less any of those things, but more an understanding that the God I serve can handle all of that because he knew what he was getting into when he thought of me, when he created me when he put me on planet earth, knowing that it was going to be quite the abstract, random 
sort of masterpiece that he that he wanted to create. <laughs> well, the fact that you even bring that up is interesting because I'm guessing in a lot of people who are listening in their minds, they're wondering this obvious question. So I'm just going to be the conduit that asks it. And that is, you know, a God who is loving, a God who who offers grace. And yet, uh, how do we reconcile this theology of what is sin and a God who would create someone like you with attractions like you had and the struggle that you had and then yet be with you in the presence of the turmoil? It's a very um, complex thing, Alan. Can you help unpack it and help us understand? Yeah, it's mind-blowing. And, and the thing that I absolutely know today and I'm, un- and I'm very comfortable knowing today is I don't understand everything about God mm-hmm. and I don't have to. And mm-hmm. as, as a young church kid, I kind of grew up with a theology and a belief that I was supposed to conquer and understand God better than I do today, that I was supposed to uncover this, this formula to not only know God but to become exactly who he created me to be, which was without mess, without struggle, without temptation, without any of those things. And that's not the God I know. Uh, The God I know is dangerous. (laughs) The God I know is absolutely in the midst of the mess. Um, He's not calming the tornado. He is the tornado. Mm -hmm. And yet he's safe for me. He's good. He's not looking for every opportunity to correct me or to discipline me or to remind me that that's not how I ought to act. He's not constantly pointing to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's exemplifying that he's the tree of life. Well, and he's made a way. He sent his son. He's, he finished it. Um, in Jesus, he finished the work. And all we have to do is realize it's done. Stop striving. Stop performing. Stop mm-hmm. looking for um, a way to be better. I am better. It's, I, I'm forever better. I'm as righteous as I'm ever going to be. I'm as good as it gets and I'm as perfect as he created me to be. I'm as perfect as his son. and All because uh, of Christ. All because yeah. of Christ. And because yeah. Jesus sat down, I can sit down too. I can be at peace and at rest. And mm-hmm. um, the striving's over. And, and that's good news. Yeah. And even if the flesh doesn't match the new creation, that's the part that we tend not to understand. We We kind of get this new creation thing. Like, yeah, it's in there somewhere, but then we get really confused by the strength of the flesh and it can be confusing. I I think where we have found that tree of life that Alan was just talking about is a constant remembering that new life that is in us and this flesh, while it has all of its struggles and desires and things that may not match up with the new creation, it's still there and we still have to do something with it. But where we find rest is in knowing that at the end of the day, our place with God is in the new life, is in the new creation. And that allows you to get a good night's sleep and wake up tomorrow morning refreshed and 
to face whatever mess or mud that your flesh has gotten you into. Well, it creates a place of peace and no condemnation because in Christ, God made a way for us to be reconciled and for us to be joint heirs and for us to be children of God. And it's not, thank goodness, dependent on any behavior, um, anything we do, anything we fail to do. It's because of him. And so um, I think reorienting ourselves to the fact that we are all sinful and that sin doesn't have a hierarchy in God's mind, nor does it have a frequency limit. (laughs) Amen. You know. um, Okay, so Leslie, you uh, end up getting hired to work with a family and you move to where Alan is nearby him and you end up um, crossing paths. Can you take us back to that and uh, share with us how you met and um, at what point your lives intersected where Alan was on his journey? Well, I was just about 30 when I moved out with the family. I was a nanny um, for a major league baseball player and his wife and Uh, They had two boys at the time and we did, we moved out here to Winter Park. Once again, I was busy. We were on the road a lot and a friend of, actually it ended up being a friend of Alan's, um, (laughs) invited, it was kind of a strange coincidence, but invited me to church and then eventually um, a, like a home fellowship group for mostly post-college age um, singles. And we, um, we would do a Bible study on Thursday nights. And so the very first time I saw Alan, I had in person, the first time I saw him in person, I had seen him on TV uh, a week or so before. And he and his friend had been giving their testimony about their homosexuality and trying to reconcile their faith and sexuality and all of that. And so I had, I knew his story. And so the first time I saw him walk into um, this home fellowship group. I, the two guys walked in and I said, Oh, there are those two gay guys from TV. (laughs) And so I, you know, that was my, that's my first remembrance of Alan is just knowing that part of his story. And, um, for about six months after that, um, it wasn't that I was playing hard to get or ignoring Alan, but I, I did kind of steer clear of him, not because of the gay stuff, not because of any of that, but because he was just a lot of personality. He was always <laughs> the center of attention. He would bounce from one group to another and every group that he went to, they were laughing and, oh, I just, he just was too much. And I just, I just couldn't do it. And so I would kind of like go back into the corner and that's hilarious. Uh, it was very fun. And so eventually, um, I couldn't ignore him anymore. Um, when we went on a fishing trip, there were 12 of us that went on two fishing boats. Each boat had six people and we went, uh, on a three day fishing venture off of, um, Key West. And, um, there was nowhere to hide (laughs) on the little, uh, six man boat. And so Alan and I just ended up talking a lot um on on that um we were the only ones who didn't really live to fish right right where (laughs) the others were up at 3 a.m fishing we were like no 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 no. i need a little sleep and so um we ended up talking a whole lot then on that fishing trip and then that that trip really did change everything um we became super good friends we um started hanging out all the time 
Um, he started hanging out at the house um, where I was living with the baseball family. And we, we became inseparable. People would either say that we acted like an old married couple or that we acted like brother and sister. And at that point, I, I really um, clung to the brother and sister. Old married couple. Old married couple. <laughs> Alan's feelings were changing for me. And I, I kind of knew it. I kind of felt it. And I definitely was not interested in it being anything more than his friend for a good six months or so myself. At one point he pulled me aside and told me that he liked me. Uh, and I told him that it was never going to happen. And so we, we continued being friends. He backed off a little bit, but he didn't back away. He didn't leave, but he just kind of, kind of took a little bit of a backseat and close enough to where we could still be friends. And I actually missed him a little bit. And uh, oh, we did that for a little while. And then there was one night that he, it was his birthday, actually. It was his 25th birthday. And well, and we started working together. We did. We were working oh, together. Okay. So we, we really were together a lot, uh, all day. And then oftentimes through dinner, he would stay and have dinner with the family. And we would do things with the boys and, and it just, it was great. It was a great time. Well, and I thought it was interesting how that family was such a sweet sounding board to you for helping you learn about grace. I mean, through your car accident, we don't have to get into that, that mm -hmm. story, but they can read all about it. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, just you became a girl who was not a stranger to shame. You had new awareness of grace and incidentally, the issue of homosexuality had been in your life prior to encountering Alan in the sense of you being exposed to it more than you had been in Fresno. And uh, can you speak a little bit to that, how that preparatory time set up for this, you know, 25th birthday uh, encounter? <laughs> yes. And because that was beautiful. I think yeah. that I saw God's hand there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a time when I actually through another friend, became interested, attracted to somebody that I met uh, just one night after a dinner party. And we were, we were all hanging out and there was this one guy that I just thought he was so handsome and he was fun and we danced and he, he just was this great guy. Well, my friend ended up telling me that they had both been a part of Exodus, which at that point I had never heard of Exodus. And, and my friend told me all about it. And it was a whole new world that I didn't, I didn't know there was an ex-gay ministry. I didn't know anything about that or what that was or what Exodus was. And, yeah, and wasn't on your them, radar. Yeah. not at all. And through my friend, he really told me um, a little bit more about it little bit more about his testimony, about the life that he was currently living. He was married at that point to a great woman and they had kids and it just was, it was, a, he opened the door to a world that I didn't know exist. Right. And so at that point I found out that this other guy that I was attracted to had, was a part of Exodus as well. And so he had that same, you know, ex-gay story and it was kind of like, oh, wait a minute, what do I do with this? 
and here I really like this guy. And yet, oh, it was like, ah, and <laughs> literally. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I spent a good number of days just trying to wrestle through some of those questions. Could somebody be gay and Christian? Could someone who was gay get married to a woman and, and live happily ever after, you know, kind of thing. And, yeah. and, you know, kind of what to, what to do with all of that. And I really wrestled through that. And at the end of the day, there was a Michael Card song uh, called Come to the Table. And he it was just, it was an invitation for anyone and everyone to come to the table and partake of what Jesus give, you know, what Jesus has to offer. And I thought, you know what? Anyone can come to that table. And so God can do anything. Mm -hmm. And of course, why wouldn't it person who was gay be able to be Christian and, you know, do work in people's lives. And so that really was just a huge stepping stone. And that was, that happened right before we moved to Orlando and therefore right before I met Alan and, yeah. and, you know, God really did work through all of that. Okay. So what happens next? You're both, you know, he's professed his attractiveness to you and you're like, <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't. Oh, I don't know. It was no, it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was trying to be sensitive. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. no, she, she wasn't sensitive. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> she said it, yeah. Well, I had been in that spot before oh. where I had been attracted to a guy and they kind of led me on a little bit. And so I spent another year hoping that, oh, maybe things would change and it didn't. Mm. And so I didn't want to do that to my really good friend. And I didn't. And I just wanted him to know, you know, we can still be friends. But that thing that, uh, you know, that other aspect of a relationship isn't going to be a part of who we are. And yet, lo and behold, uh, a couple months later, really kind of in a moment, my feelings did change. And or at least God allowed me to recognize that my feelings had changed. And all of a sudden, there was a picture of Alan and myself and two other friends and I would cover up my two other friends and, and I was looking at Alan and I together and we looked really nice and the two of us and, and things just kind of, kind of changed rather quickly for me. We, we had this birthday party for Alan, his 25th birthday party. He hugged me goodnight and I literally felt different. It was mm. odd. And for the next couple of weeks, I tried to subtly let him know that my feelings had changed. He will tell you it wasn't so subtle, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to hold on to my dignity and say that it was. And at the end of the two weeks, we went on our first date halfway through dinner. He leaned over, asked me when we were getting married. I told him January 3rd was a Saturday. And so we got married on January 3rd. And so it was, yes. so it was. Yes. Okay, Alan, so, you know, for everybody listening, you have to fill us in on the internal workings of your heart, okay? So you're struggling with um, same-sex attraction, double life, gay bars, working at Exodus during the day, trying to help people, but th this turmoil. You're, some years are going by. You're, you're sort of playing into that um, trying to do better, be better serve better, love God better, but still struggling. And and then you make a turn towards deciding celibacy is your conviction. And then you're attracted to Leslie. Help us understand what happened. Well, for probably the next few years after that um, amazing encounter in the gay bar, um, it was really 
my life was about, hey, this is, I don't know if this is ever going to change, if these feelings are ever going to be different than they are. You know, there was a period of time where I thought, I won't get married. Um, I'll just be single and celibate and um, love Jesus. And that that works for me. Um, I had some great single friends and, it, and it, it did work for a while, but I I always wanted to be married. I always wanted to have a wife and a family. And there was all throughout my life indicators that th- that was something that I was interested in and, and wanted and, and could have. And I, you know, I dated um, girls here and there and Yet probably, I think it was about 1996, I was 24, um, 1995, 23, 24, I realized, I I really want to be married. I really want to have a wife. That's something I I really am going to just pray for. Um, I had this great conversation with my sister-in-law at one point um, who um, has um, eight kids, um, seven of them boys, and she was just telling me, you know, I... I just, I'm praying that, that my kids don't have to date, that my boys just find um, this perfect woman. Do you want me to pray that for you? And, or maybe you should just pray that, that God would, she knew my story. She knew what, where I'd been and, and the struggles that I'd had. And so I just started praying, you know, God, I just, I want to meet my wife and know it instantly and get married. And, you know, I'd given up on trying to rid myself of my same-sex attractions. I didn't feel like God needed me to do that. Um, I didn't feel like that was a prerequisite to falling in love with um, with a woman and getting married. Um, and lo and behold, I, I got involved in, in a, a different church um, where um, there were more uh, people my age and, and single people and got involved in this Bible study. And I remember the first time Leslie ever walked through the doors of the Bible study. It was long before she noticed me, but I noticed her immediately um, the first time I was there. And I just remember her walking through and sitting down at the feet of um, our mutual friend who was my best friend. And I considered her that, you know, I cons- I, I looked at her and I, I was interested in her. And it wasn't like, oh, my gosh, um, she's hot. I've got to have her. I want to date her. But there was, oh, my gosh, this girl has something that makes me want to know her, um, makes me want to get to know her. And as I, a person, as a person. Yeah. And I remember just purposing to get an audience with her, for her to look at me, for her to laugh at something I said, everyone else was laughing. Why wasn't she laughing? Um, and I just this, this relationship that was one-sided for so long, but I definitely had with her. Um, and it, it, it grew from she's interesting to, wow, there's something amazing about her. Look at the way she laughs. I love the way she laughs. Look at what, how she looks. And, and there was just this, this amazing thing about her. And we weren't friends. We didn't talk. Um, I don't know that I told anybody this relationship that I was having with her. And I don't even know that I knew I was having a relationship with her, but there was just something about her um, that I um, wanted to to get to know better. And finally, we became friends, and it was instantaneous that we weren't just acquaintances. We weren't just uh, people who met on a boat. We were best friends. We were um, that relationship I'd been having. Now we were having with one another. And it, it still wasn't um, this thing where I... I 
knew I was in love with her. But looking back, I think the moment she walked through the door, I, I loved her and knew that there was something about her. Um, I knew that I would spend the rest of my life with her. And um, a couple of months into our mutual relationship, you know, that solidified for me that she's the one she's, she's it. And so I told her, I, I like you and I want to be in a relationship with you. She said, it's never going to happen. And I just, I stepped back and, and realized I don't have to, to push here. I don't have to make this happen. If this is God, it's going to work. Um, a few months later, we professed our undying love for each other and <laughs> I proposed marriage. And again, looking back, we had this opportunity to grow in this relationship. And I, I think so often people want to look at us and say, how does a gay guy um, end up with a straight girl? How does this work? How does, how does all of this happen? And I think people overthink it. Um, there is no formula in it. You know, for years at, at Exodus, we wanted this to be this encouraging thing for guys and girls alike to realize, see, you can go from gay to straight and be in this wonderful relationship. And that's none of what we're talking about here. This is Alan and Leslie Chambers story. This is not um, a cookie cutter experience that we want to market and sell. Not prescriptive. Um, to the rest of the world. No, it's not a prescription. Yeah. This is just our story. And, you know, I look at so many lifelong straight people who are in relationships with one another. Um, guys, for instance, I've spoken at, at more men's conferences, ironically, than I can count, giving marriage advice to men who don't have the same story that I have, um, who have always been attracted um, to the opposite sex and who are in these dying relationships. And I, I find it so comforting and so amazing that God gave me um, the ability and, and the story that allowed me to get to know Leslie for Leslie first, not as this woman that I was... Um, sexually and physically attracted to, but this woman who he created for me to revere and adore and be in relationship with for who she was, not because of how she looked. Um, and those other things came later. Um, and here we find ourselves 18 years later in a marriage that we love, um, that is uh, beautiful, that is vibrant, that is full of everything it should be full of, and we think we're we're lucky, um, we're blessed to be in this relationship, and it's it wasn't about gay to straight or God fixing one thing before something else happened. It was about realizing God has a story for all of us, and and this is ours. Well, that concludes part one of my conversation with Alan and Leslie. We're going to hear so much more from them next week. We're going to hear all about their marriage, their wedding night, the transformation that happened in his heart from fear to grace. We're going to hear more about Alan's family of origin and his father and the journey that he was on as he led an international ministry and what really it was that made him choose to voluntarily shut it down. You can find all the show notes and links to anything mentioned in this episode over on the show notes page, JackieWatkins.com. Again, if you're listening in the Purple Podcast iTunes Apple app, 
uh, that's whether you have an iPhone or an iPad, you can click on the little strip on the bottom and that'll show uh, the artwork for this show at the top. It's going to have my picture with Mud Stories with Jackie Watkins. All you need to do is tap on that picture and the show notes link will be there for you in purple. Also, I'm going to have a link for you to be able to click through and subscribe to the show. I don't want you to miss any of these episodes, uh, any of the new news or announcements related to Mud Stories. So there'll be a link there where you can subscribe just through your phone. You push on that link. It'll take you to a page. You can subscribe. You can leave a rating or review, which you guys, thank you so much for leaving rating and reviews. I've been reading each and every one of them, and I'm just blown away by your comments and your encouragement. I'm so very thankful. So if you haven't left a review on iTunes or subscribe to this show, again, click on the artwork on your podcast app and click on the link through there. And it's super easy to do. Just a couple clicks on your phone or mobile device makes it really easy. You can just do it really fast. And it would bless me so very much. It encourages and helps me to not only keep going, it keeps you updated, but it also helps iTunes to show this show to more people so that more people can hear these mud stories and be encouraged. If you want to receive a free PDF today of my favorite resources for finding freedom from failure, you can text the word subscribe mud stories to the number 33444 and I'll get that delivered right directly to your email. I would love nothing more than to stay connected with you and that's an easy way you can do it. You can also connect with us over at the Facebook closed group called Mud Stories Gathering. You can get there by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash mud stories gathering. I'd love to interact with you over there. We have quite a group and I value your feedback so much. So you can click through on the app to fill out the survey or you can um, go to JackieWatkins.com forward slash survey. And I'd love to hear your feedback. I'd love to hear how I can serve you better and anything you want to share with me. So today I am hoping this encouraged you. I know for me, I was so encouraged by Alan and Leslie, and I can't wait to share part two with you next week. And until then, whatever it is you're facing today, no matter what mud you've been through in the past, no matter what is ahead for you in life, may we all collectively find a grateful song to sing. Have a beautiful day. Never in mother feels a press upon my mind I pull the shame that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. I never any mother fails to press upon my that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me
song 